Hello, Tom here. Just putting another episode of the new Science Briefing podcast in your feed for you to check out. We've been doing this all month because it's a really exciting new podcast from the listener and the briefing family here. So if you like it, subscribe to the Science Briefing. It's brought to you by the science writers at the Cosmos magazine. And this episode you're about to hear is about a robot that broke a boy's finger at a Russian chess tournament. And that story is the starting point for a fascinating look at the double-edged sword of making robots more human. A listener production. Are robots becoming too much like humans? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing, a podcast about the science of everything. Last month, at a chess tournament in Russia, a young boy's finger was broken by his competitor. His competitor was a robot. A young boy has had his fingers broken by a chess-playing robot during a match at the Moscow Open. What happened at the Moscow Chess Open reignited, for some, an age-old fear that robots are out to get us. But it also posed some bigger questions about how we perceive robots and why we see machines as human. Today, the double-edged sword of making robots more human. Petra, let's unpack this incident at the Moscow Open a bit more. What were some of the responses to this as it all went down? This story really had everything. There was a Russian chess tournament, robots behaving badly, <laughs> and children, for some reason, playing against robots. Petra Stock is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. There was a whole mix of responses. The president of the Moscow Chess Federation responded in what I thought seemed like a characteristically Russian manner. He said, the robot broke the child's finger. This is, of course, bad. And then the vice president, who also spoke to the media, seemed to actually blame the seven-year-old boy. He said that the boy <laughs> violated the safety rules of the game. And basically, he said the boy made a move and didn't give the robot enough time to respond. And that's why the robot grabbed him. It's always the children's fault, isn't it? <laughs> There were also reports that the boy's parents contacted public prosecutors after the incident. And I guess this is a crucial point or we wouldn't be laughing about it. The boy with his broken finger ended up playing the next day. He finished the tournament and some volunteers helped him to record his moves. So this, I guess, paints a bit of a picture of what happened. But this feels like only half of the story because when I was covering this for Cosmos, it was really the way that people responded to this news story that was really interesting, particularly some of the comments that came through social media seemed quite revealing about the way humans see robots. What did you find interesting about these random comments online? Some of these comments came from Twitter and I found them quite funny. People do like to take the piss a bit on the internet, but they were saying things like the kid was winning or the robot was a sore loser. <laughs> Others were saying, look, I get worked up over board games too. One of my favorites was not now chess robot uprising. <laughs> so I guess this is like 
what we often see on Twitter, but they're all striking a similar sort of tone in that basically everyone was talking about this robot as if it were alive or almost human. And maybe also sort of attributing that robot with intent as if it purposefully went after this kid who was playing too fast, maybe winning and broke its finger as a result. Obviously, this is not the reality. The robot is a machine. But what stood out to me about all of this is that it really demonstrates that when people see a robot, they are so quick to humanise them when they're not actually human. Okay, Petra, before we go into how we humanise these robots, I sort of want to get a better sense of what robots you're talking about. It's interesting because I guess what we've typically thought of as a robot is actually changing. Robots have been used for a long time in industrial practices, working in factories, building cars. We're now seeing more and more robots move into the wild, so to speak, as consumer products and in more human environments. Robots are entering restaurants, our homes, shops, and these are what's called service robots. And sometimes they're called social robots if they're interacting with and communicating with humans. As of 2019, there were something like 23 million service robots around the world. Oh. That's, you know, almost the entire population of Australia alone. And their numbers have only increased since the pandemic. And to circle back to how we humanise these service robots, what does that actually mean? Basically, it's giving a service robot human characteristics. There is actually research that shows not only do a lot of people do this, but they can become quite attached to their service robots. One example is the Roomba vacuum cleaners, those little circular puck-shaped vacuums that glide around your house and clean your floor. I spoke to a researcher about the Roombas and they talked about how people name them, they give them a gender, but then they also become so attached to their vacuum robots that when they have to take them in for repairs, they go to extra lengths to make sure they get their Roomba back. I love that people can get that attached to their Roomba. Okay, so that's one example, but what about a service robot that actually resembles a human? So one example is a robot that's called Moxie. She looks like something out of a science fiction movie, a robot visiting from the future. But the future is now at Elmhurst Hospital. Meet Moxie the robot. Moxie is a nursing assistant robot that's found in some hospitals in the United States. So Moxie is basically there to help the nurse with things like delivering medical supplies, bringing fresh linen to patients, or dropping off samples to the lab. I would say Moxie is kind of cute. You know, it glides down the hospital corridors. It's roughly human-sized, and it has a torso, and it's got this one robot arm. It has this open, kind of squarish face and these big, expressive, pale blue LED eyes, and they can go wide open to blinking, And I loved this detail. It sometimes makes heart eye shapes. It can do arm gestures and wave at people. So it's one example of this kind of humanoid robot, but it's far from the only one. So why do we do this, Petra? Like, why do we give robots these human traits? 
I guess the key reason is that research shows that people respond better to a robot that resembles a human in some form. And we find these humanoid robots more intuitive and easier to interact with. Sure. But I mean, all of this has been raising concerns for some human-robot interaction researchers and some robot ethicists. They're concerned that by giving robots human qualities, there's the risk that we might potentially be reinforcing some dangerous biases and stereotypes. Okay, run us through this, Petra. How can humanizing robots reinforce stereotypes? One of the most researched areas on this is with voice bots or smart speakers. So if we think about the different voice assistants on the market, Alexa, Cortana, Siri, This was explored in a report a few years back by the UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. They looked at the ways that most of these digital assistants were stereotyped as kind of female secretaries. They had a feminine name, a feminine sounding voice, and all of these voice assistants are essentially answering to one-sided commands. You're asking sometimes for a basic search or a question to be answered. So this report explored this link between these feminized voice robots and answering to commands or being subservient to the user and how that might reinforce existing gender stereotypes about women. Yeah, wow. But this went even further. Quartz published an article that looked at the ways voice bots responded to things like sexual harassment. They looked, for example, at how Siri would respond to being called a slut or a user, say, proposing sexual favours. And there were a few different replies, one of which was, I'd blush if I could. Okay, that is gross. Alexa responded to some of the same comments saying, well, thanks for the feedback. So this is one example. And there's concern that what could happen with voice bots could also happen with service robots. I'm almost afraid to ask, have we seen an example of this? So service robots haven't been deployed as widespread as voice bots like Siri or Alexa, but there is research looking at how this might be possible. One research project was by a group at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. They actually asked a group of participants to categorize over 250 humanoid robots according to how those users perceived the robot's age and their gender. At one end of the scale, one robot called Erica, a conversational robot which has long hair, red lips and cheeks, received one of the highest femininity scores. It was actually described by the robotics lab as having a beautiful and neutral female face. Another was called Topio. This was a table tennis playing robot, which is 188 centimetres tall, has arms, legs and a six pack. This one received a high masculinity rating. And the reason is really interesting because the participants tended to associate robots with arms and legs as being masculine, whereas robots that had surface features like eyelashes or clothes or hair led to a higher feminine rating. Now, They're not confirming that it does feed into stereotypes, but it did give the researchers a reason to explore this further. Okay, Petra, so what's the way around this? What can we do to avoid reinforcing these biases? It ultimately comes down to the design and the designers behind these robots. 
If we go back to Moxie, the nursing assistant robot, Diligent Robotics, the company that made Moxie, deliberately chose to make the robot gender neutral. They gave Moxie pronouns. It's an it for a single robot and they for many robots. And their reason behind making Moxie gender neutral is because it's operating in nursing, a field that's mostly female, and they didn't want a robot that would exclude or discourage men from joining the profession. There are other researchers and robot designers who think a way to avoid reinforcing stereotypes could be to remove some of the humanness in robot design and give robots more robot-specific identities rather than human ones. Factoring into the design process what your robot does and more importantly how it's represented is what some roboticists are arguing should be front and centre. Petra, I want to circle back to the chess robot here from the Moscow Open. This is a robot that doesn't necessarily look like a human other than the fact that it resembles a human arm. But as you said earlier, people immediately jumped to humanizing this machine. I wonder, is it too late to untangle us as humans from seeing robots in any other way? I honestly don't know. One pretty major point we haven't touched on is the ways that science fiction has really shaped how we see robots. And that runs pretty deep. Decades, hundreds of years even, in movies, in books. I mean, just think about the Jetsons, Star Wars, Doctor Who. These stories really inform the ways we see robots and the way we attribute humanness to them. I don't necessarily think our perception of seeing the human element in robots is locked in forever. Like I was just talking about, some roboticists are now trying to make robots more robotic, kind of back to how it all started, more abstract, more transparently machine-like or droid-like. There's also an argument that designers should be more inclusive and thoughtful in their design process, including a range of viewpoints not just men, but also women, gender non-conforming, non-binary, transgender people in the design. So then the design becomes more inclusive. And maybe as designers change their approach, that too could change how we see robots altogether. Petra Stock is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. You can read more of Petra's reporting at cosmosmagazine.com, including the article this episode was based on. That article is called The Robot Broke the Child's Finger. This is, of course, bad. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. Additional audio from Sky News Australia and ABC7 Chicago. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. Our executive producer is Melanie Withnall. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. That was another episode of The Science Briefing. There's two episodes every week, hosted by the wonderful Sophie Calabretto. Hope you liked it. If you did, subscribe, and I'll catch you tomorrow for a normal episode of The Briefing.